Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Regional Accommodation and Leave of Absence podcast brought to you by the Ogletree Deacons Leave of Absence and Reasonable Accommodation Practice Group. My name is Charles Thompson, and I'm co-chair of the group. Today with me, we have two of my favorite people, uh, Stacy Bunk, who is the who's a shareholder in our Kansas City, Missouri office, and Stacy is a former managing partner of that office. Isn't that right, Stacy? That is correct. We also have with us John Stratton, who is managing partner in our Stamford, Connecticut office, and that's about thirty minutes by subway outside the uh, outside uh, New York City. And by New York City, I mean Manhattan. And uh, John, how long have you been managing partner? I've been managing partner for a couple of years now, and uh, you know we've uh, we're, we we've been a, a growing and striving office. So uh, it's been it's been a, a good couple of year run on it so far. All right. Both, all three of us practice in this area frequently, uh, actually uh, constantly and continuously. Um, We all three give advice to clients across the country. Um, I'm in San Francisco, California, and uh, we also litigate in this area on a consistent basis. So today what we thought we'd do is talk to you all about uh, three very important new ADA reasonable accommodation decisions. And these decisions are going to cover the following areas. First of all, we're going to talk about something that has been deviling many employers, and that is remote work. Um, second of all, we're then going to talk about when you know when you transfer somebody as a reasonable accommodation, can the employer choose the most qualified applicant instead of the person who needs the accommodation? And finally, John, I think you're going to end up uh, talking to us about new a new commuting decision and whether employers have to reasonably accommodate an employee's commute. All right. So, John, I'm going to start with uh, I'm going to start with you today and tell us a little bit about this new I think it's a Seventh Circuit decision. Tell us about this new Seventh Circuit decision regarding remote work as a reasonable accommodation. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, I mean, that that's a topic that a lot of us pay a lot of attention to because, you know, now that we are past, you know, I, I hesitate saying past the, uh, you know, COVID-19 uh, issues that we've dealt with, but we were, we're, we're not in the middle of it anymore. In remote work, uh, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people were embracing it and it was, it was very effective and, and it helped businesses continue on. But now the real question is, is, do we have to continue remote work? And everyone wants to know the answer to that. So there was a Seventh Circuit decision uh, where that, that topic came front and center uh, before the Seventh Circuit. So the case was interesting because it dealt with a director of imaging services at a hospital that decided that you know when everyone else was asked to come back to the hospital uh, for in-person, on-site uh, work, she didn't want to come back. Uh, she asked for an accommodation of working remotely and if that was denied and she resigned and filed a lawsuit. What her, her diagnosis or condition that re- required the reasonable accommodation was ADHD and anxiety. 
Uh, but her role, that, that, that's where I think we need to look at. And, and one of the reasons why this case is important, because it, 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 we go over the fact that, you know, pre-COVID, a lot of courts would say remote work is an accommodation. You know, all the employer had to say is, listen, there's a general need and a benefit from having teamwork and collaboration. That's almost essential for every job. We need you there. Uh, but, you know, it was a very general type comment and it worked. That's all you needed to say. Now, this decision sort of highlights, and, and there's other decisions around the country as well, that this is going to be a much more fact-intensive approach. We need to look at what the duties of the particular job is and what the consequences, if any, of failing to perform them on-site are. And, and, that, and that's now part of the analysis of determining whether or not remote work would be a reasonable accommodation. So here, you know, as the director of imaging services, her role required her to monitor plans for patient care services. She had to be a, a li liaison uh, between the radiologists, her department staff, and other department leaders, and even oversaw and monitored the installation of and maintenance of equipment. So there was a lot of on-site work that was required. And, and you know, what the court in determining that remote work would not be a reasonable accommodation here is, you know, they essentially, and it's a very common sense type of uh, you know, response is granting the accommodation here would have allowed this plaintiff to avoid performing the essential tasks of her job rather than helping her accomplish those tasks. And that's what a reasonable accommodation is all about. It's an accommodation that helps you accomplish the essential functions of your job. It doesn't exclude you from them. Uh, and, get, and to get there, what the court wanted, to, what, what it did is that it looked at how remote work would not allow this individual to effectively perform her managerial roles of monitoring and evaluating department activities, uh, you know, the equipment responsibilities, and the personnel from home. There just wasn't a substitute for real-time observation of personal reactions. But what was also important is a lot of her colleagues and uh, em employees that re reported to her also reported that her absence on site was negatively affecting their job performance and the department as a whole. So those were all things that the court took into account when determining that this would not be considered remote work, a, a reasonable accommodation in this situation. Great. Thank you. All right. Stacy and John, I'm gonna, about to ask you two questions relating to remote work and this particular case. And um, either of you can answer either or both of them. All right. So here, here, are the, here are the questions. So, John, one of the things that you said was that, that the colleagues told the department, the colleagues told the department that uh, her absence was negatively affecting individual performance and the department. So I have a question. Did the case say whether the, the, her colleagues in that department volunteered that information or did the employer solicit that information? And if so, would either of you all advise an employer to solicit that type of information from colleagues? The factual situation about the case, and then either of you can answer the, the more global question. Right. Well, so the feedback from colleagues was part of the analysis and part of the evidence before the court determined whether or not the accommodation was reasonable. And it was part of the evidence that the employer provided to, to the court. 
Now, when we're looking to determine whether or not remote work is a reasonable accommodation, there's no harm in, in looking into what the job duties are and how remote work would impact it, either negatively, positively, or neutral. Uh, so here, it's a hospital. And I think there was, there was plenty of what we would call water cooler discussion, uh, that it was pretty easy to know what other people felt about the remote work situation. It, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't a secret, put it that way. Yeah. So I guess my, my question, though, is, so would you have any qualms about an employer soliciting that information? going to the people she was supposed to supervise and say, hey, how is her absence affecting you or affecting the department? Well, so the, the thing is, you'd want to do it in a way that, that wouldn't disrupt the employee workforce, but it is valuable information to have nonetheless. And it is information that, that an employer in determining whether or not remote work is a reasonable accommodation needs to have. So, so you do have to get that information but you have to do it with some tact, right? Uh, and, and, and you wanna make sure that it's done in a way that is, it, it may just be surveying the department and, and workloads and, and performance expectations and, and any issues, positive and negatives that may be impacting the department. Uh, so I think you wanna do it with some tact, but it is information that is critical to this analysis. Right, because what if she came back and does soliciting that, information, depending on how you do it, undermine the manager that eventually returns. That's the concern, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, so he, you know, one way to do it is, and a lesson from this case that, that I think we should share with everyone is, it's very important to have your job descriptions very much up to date. And if attendance uh, in person or on-site attendance is an essential function, that should be listed in the job description. Uh, and as part of creating those job descriptions, you can have that conversation with the department of, you know, well, do you do you think it's necessary? Uh, you know, obviously, you're, you're not going to have the employees write the job description, but it could be part of the polling to figure out whether or not attendance is critical or not critical. You can right. Poll the workforce. Right. So, I mean, you'd want to include consistent and regular attendance, something exactly. along those lines. If you all were advising Here's a second question. If you all are advising an employer to, uh, to try to figure out whether remote work is a reasonable accommodation or continued remote work is a reasonable accommodation, what would you advise the employer to look at other than the things that we've already mentioned, like is the absence affecting individual performance? Do performing those job, those particular skills require the employee or the supervisor to be there? What else would you have the employer look at? Well, so the first thing is you do want to see what the job description says. Now, a job description is not going to rule the day, if you will, but it helps. And it's a factor you, you look at. And, and sometimes they're not up to date, right? So that's why it's not going to be the beginning and end of the analysis. But what you're really going to do is you look beyond the job description. You want, you want to look at what are the duties of this particular job? And what would the consequences be if they were not performed uh, on site? And you want to really look into and, and sketch out what, what are the consequences of not being on site to perform those duties? If there are not any consequences, well, then remote work may very well be a reasonable accommodation. But if there, there are truly negative uh, consequences, you know, and it may be, you know, to the other colleagues, it may be 
to simply how efficient the job is getting getting done. Right. Those are things you want to list out, and and that would help you reach that that conclusion. Yeah, I think I would want to look at some of the things that we all three of us advise clients to look at when they're determining whether a leave of absence is a reasonable accommodation. Is the is remote work affecting internal client service? Is remote work affecting external client service? Is it affecting projects that 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 would be getting done more efficiently or at all if the employee was you know was actually at work? So I think that those those are some of the things you would you would probably look at look at as well. Um, Stacy, let's go to you, and I think this is a Fifth Circuit case. And um, a Fifth Circuit case regarding job transfers or reasonable accommodation. Can you uh, can you tell us about that? Sure. So this case was brought by the EEOC, and uh, it was against a hospital who had a policy of hiring the most qualified candidate. And the EEOC's position was that that policy violated the ADA when a qualified employee with disabilities requests reassignment to a vacant role. And a little bit of background on this case and just a reminder for our listeners of, of things to be mindful of in your own workforces. In this particular litigation, it was revealed that the underlying uh, organization did not have a robust ADA policy or any ADA training, did not have any formalized process for assisting disabled individuals. And so just a reminder, those are things to keep on your radar to make sure that you're considering whether you do in fact have a policy training or formalized process, because that certainly came under scrutiny in this particular decision. But essentially what happened here was the plaintiff was injured at work, returned for a brief period of time to light duty, and then was unable to work for several months. Ultimately, she asked for accommodations, and she was actually just told at some point, no, just resign. We can't help you. And uh, effectively, what came into play in the case was after she exhausted her FMLA leave, she applied for an open position as a scheduling coordinator, and the parties agreed that she met the minimum qualifications for that job. However, the hiring manager chose a better qualified candidate, and that was based on the hospital policy of hiring the most qualified applicant. And ultimately, the question before the court was, was that in violation of the ADA to hire the most qualified applicant? Ultimately, what the district court held in that case in Texas was that since the hospital selected the most qualified applicant for every position, it was not required to reassign disabled employees into a specific position and effectively give them preference. And, you know, one of the things that came into play in this particular case was that the employer here was a hospital. And so ultimately, the Fifth Circuit was persuaded by the argument that an obligation to choose a less qualified applicant would have a potential impact on patient lives. I mean, people people's lives are at stake if we were following the, the argument of the EOC and requiring a mandatory reassignment. And so 
Ultimately, of note, this case further developed a circuit split. There's There are differing opinions in the Tenth Circuit and the Seventh Circuit. And so our listeners should anticipate this is something that will continue to percolate among the circuits and potentially go up to the Supreme Court. So this may not be the last time we've heard of this. Um, but ultimately, that is the, the current law in the Fifth Circuit is that there is not a requirement to place a disabled individual in a position uh, over a more qualified applicant. And certainly, again, in this context within a hospital setting. So, Stacy, so let's set this up a little is that, look, we all know that employers have an obligation to reasonably accommodate an employee in their current position. And that if they if the employer can't do that, maybe a reasonable accommodation doesn't exist. You then look at other positions at the same level that are vacant. And then if those don't exist and lower and lower and lower, lower positions. And so I think that the question is whether the employer has to transfer the, as a reasonable accommodation, the employee to a particular vacant position, even if they're most qualified applicant. And so is the reasonable accommodation that the employer provides, is it to apply for a position, a vacant position, or is it to get the, uh, the vacant position? Did I, did I summarize that accurately? You did. You did. And I think ultimately the Fifth Circuit decided in this context, yes, they had an opportunity to apply, but ultimately the hospital was not required to put the person who required the reasonable accommodation over the needs of its patients and give that person the job over a more qualified applicant. Yeah. And, and John, I'm going to invite your input as well. My, I, I'm under the impression that most circuits with the exception of very few, and fed, we're talking about federal circuits, um, and certainly the state of California, say that the general rule is it's not, so that the reasonable accommodation is not the application because the employee can do that anyway. But the reasonable accommodation is to transfer, even if the person's not the most qualified, even if the person's not the most qualified person. Am I getting that right? That that's right. the rule of most courts Right. So, so the, the question really boils down to, and this is where the split in the courts is, is it reasonable? Because accommodation always has to be reasonable. Right. Is it reasonable to put someone in the position that's not as qualified as another candidate? So, you know, is the reasonable decision to go with the most qualified candidate? And it, is it an unreasonable accommodation request to say, listen, I know you have someone that's more qualified than me, but I should get the job anyways. So, th so I think that's what a lot of the, the, the circuits and why there's right. a split and what they're struggling with. And, you know, the other thought is, you know, is the ADA supposed to be used as a sword or as a shield? You know, and, and oftentimes, you know, the, the shield is protecting the employee, uh, you know, from, from unfair conduct from the, from the employer, making sure that they get the reasonable accommodation. But here, and this is what something that the Fifth Circuit pointed out, is they weren't comfortable with the argument that this individual must be awarded the position irrespective of who else had applied because that's turning the ADA more, ADA more into a, a sword than a shield. Yeah, it seems to me that the Fifth Circuit sort of took a more nuanced approach than most other circuits take, which is either a yes, you have to, or no, you don't have to. And they said the general rule is that 
you have to transfer the person. But in this particular situation, because it was a hospital, and we're not going to second guess, we're not going to second guess the hospital's business decision in this particular case. Yeah, they definitely spent time uh, pointing out that this was a hospital and what the consequences would be if you did not have the most qualified position person in place for that position. All right, so John, let's turn to the to a to a I think it's a Seventh Circuit decision and talk about reasonably accommodating an employee's commute. And uh, we can talk about uh, when you do this. We can talk about what the trend is in the courts about accommodating a commute and what even accommodating a commute means. Sure, and and I, this is an interesting case, and I think it's a case that we're not done talking about this topic. So, you know, this case is interesting because it's a very sympathetic case uh, and it was a very easy accommodation to provide. So, so to give everyone a little bit of kind of insight of what I'm talking about, this is a call center employee. So it's a call center employee that works the night shift and had cataracts in both eyes. Uh, Night driving was very difficult and public transportation just wasn't an option. So he requested a work schedule beginning two hours earlier. So just two hours earlier, which would greatly help him with his commute at night, you know, due to the cataracts. And the company said, sure, and gave him the, the accommodation for an initial 30-day period, but then denied the request for an additional 30-day period. And the EOC filed suit on his behalf. Now, why this is so interesting is that employers are required to accommodate an employee so that they can perform the essential functions of their position. The goal is, at the end of the day, we want to have uh, employees with or without a reasonable accommodation to be able to perform the essential functions of their position. Is commuting part of the job? Uh, And and historically, uh, the courts have taken the position that getting to and from the job is not part of the job. That's on you, employee. Uh, You know, it's kind of similar under the Fair Labor Standards Act, where commuting time, you don't pay an employee for commuting time. Uh, that's not part of the, the analysis. And often uh, courts, when you're looking at the context of an ADA, reasonable accommodation, the idea was, you know, getting to and from work, that's on the employee's you know, si- side of the, the burden, not the employer's. But here, the, you know, the court, and, and I think because the accommodation was so easy for the employee and it was reasonable, it, it, and they admitted that that, that that impacted their decision, the decision was, if commuting to work is a prerequisite to an essential job function, such as attendance in the workplace, and the accommodation is reasonable under the circumstances, then, then you need to grant it. Now, the court also took, took pains to point out that accommodating commute is not something that an employer is always supposed to do. But once you open that door, and that's why this decision is important. Uh, so if the analysis is if commuting is a prerequisite to an essential job function such as attendance, well, isn't that going to be the vast majority of jobs where attendance is essential function? Because otherwise, then you can have remote work and commuting isn't even something to talk about. Then the analysis becomes, is it an undue burden for the employer not to give the accommodation? So the, the real question is, is where are we going to go with this topic? And, 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 it, and it does not appear as that we'll be dealing with this topic going forward. But I think the lesson for employers here is that we're in a gray area or a developing area of the law. And just because someone is asking for an accommodation for a commute, you've got to find out what the employee is asking for and whether or not 
their request, even if it relates to a commute, is reasonable. Yeah, and if you're going to deny the, I mean, here here we had what it was two hours. That was can I just start work two hours earlier? And, and I don't know that that I you're more familiar with the case than I am, John. I I don't know that that's what the employer said in this case. But remember that in these cases. You know, it is, and as in most litigation, once you get to the jury, it's all about the story you tell. And a jury is going to be more sympathetic to an employer who at least looks like it is, you know, expressing sympathy to the employee and trying to come up with some way that the employee can continue to work. Uh, and, and John Stacy, I don't know what your views are, but, but if you disagree, you should certainly say so. Well, yeah, I mean, I, w- one of the, the goals in providing advice is that you have to look ahead always. And, you know, the, the very last part of this analysis, if you're looking ahead, is a jury trial. You know, if, if you got it wrong or if you're accused of getting it wrong, how are you going to look? So not only uh, is it a legal requirement to engage in the interactive process, you absolutely want to, because if you end up at trial, and you haven't done what is required of you, and you haven't done it in a way that a jury is going to look favorably upon you, then you're going to have a hard time winning a trial. So we we always want to look ahead. Yeah. So Stacy, John, any other uh, comments you'd like to make about any of the cases we we've talked about today? Only other comment I would make is picked two EEOC driven cases. Uh, just a reminder for our listeners that we're seeing an increase in. EEOC-led litigation in the ADA space. And so some of the topics we've talked about are pretty nuanced, but again, just be be cognizant, as John said, as to what sometimes may seem like an easy decision. Uh, sometimes you need to think through it a little bit more to identify all of the potential angles and think about the potential risk of making a decision that might seem easy in the moment, but might be uh, one of the topics that's on the EEOC's radar with respect to their litigation and their initiatives. So, and th- that includes, uh, I've noted in this case, um, individuals with uh, with different ability with respect to vision. And so again, a reminder to our viewers, if you've got an individual who has a vision-related problem, know that that is a hot-button issue for the EUC, and uh, there's some guidance that's put out by the EUC on how to manage those types of reasonable accommodations. That's a good point, both of you. Again, it's not just the decision you make at the moment. It is how you need to play it out, and it's not how it looks internally. It is also how it looks externally to third parties, like a judge or a jury. All right. Thank you, uh, John, Stacy, for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening. And uh, we'll be producing or publishing some more of these podcasts on a more regular basis. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.